0: It's kind of a story of separation of powers over time. So in one historical setting, maybe the executive branch takes a lot of power for itself. And then in another, there's a resurgent court nitpicking about the language of different statutes. Instead of this being a bunch of isolated stories about individual personalities, this is kind of a two century saga of these different institutions fighting and they're Different positions. Professor Edmondson, I'd like to ask your opinion
1: about, you know, generally we think about the Supreme Court in the eras of like the Jeffersonian, Jacksonian, Reconstruction, the New Deal, and then the Reagan Revolution. Uh, I'm guessing you would probably consider those to be the significant errors of the court? Certainly, it's, it's safe to say that the present moment is a, uh, a juncture, transitional with transitioning from a previous era into whatever it is that is to come. The peculiarity of administrative law really only became remarkable or noticeable or widely remarked, I would say, no earlier than the 1920s, because there there weren't as nearly as many administrative agencies, and the areas of life that they addressed were more limited, even though abstractly these questions could have been framed about the very legitimacy of administrative agencies, could have been framed at the founding. There's there's really very little uh, to go
2: on. I must admit, Mr. Hamilton, I'm a little uncertain (laughs) as to the purpose of the Treasury Department. (laughs) No doubt its function will reveal itself to me in good time.
1: So I would say that the era that should be of greatest concern, greatest relevance to us today, began with the resistance by the Supreme Court to the New Deal. Well, I'm reminded of that evening in March, four years ago, when I made my first radio report to you. We were then in the midst of the great banking crisis. resistance of the Supreme Court, to the National Industrial Recovery Act was met by President Roosevelt's proposal to enlarge the membership of the Supreme Court. What is my proposal? It is simply this. Whenever a judge or justice of any federal court has reached the age of 70 and does not avail himself of the opportunity to retire on a pension. A new member shall be appointed by the president then in office with the approval, as required by the Constitution, of the Senate of the United States. Certainly that's one era that is past us. But there are two two areas of doctrine that emerge from that era that are are still kind of... Up in the air, one of them being the so called non delegation doctrine, which was uh, invoked by the court in Schecter Poultry, Carter Cole, Panama, Refining, Us. This- landmark anti-New Deal decisions. And another is a case called Humphrey's Executor, in which the Supreme Court of the United States took Congress's side as against the president. Congress had protected, by legislation had protected members of the Federal Trade Commission from summary removal, which uh, uh, limits the president's power. So there is a question about the viability of Humphrey's executor. And there's also a question about the seriousness with which the court will take non-delegation doctrine, which effectively limits Congress's power to empower uh, administrative agencies and also the president.
2: Oh, in a case called Humphrey's Executor versus United States, Justice Sutherland wrote an opinion announced the same day as the case that invalidated the National Industrial Recovery Act, which prevented President Franklin Roosevelt from removing the commissioners of the Federal Trade Commission. That was itself a reversal of our prior law regarding the president's powers. Many, including President Roosevelt, thought it an action motivated by hostility to to the president's program. But Humphrey's executor preserved, at least in theory, the line that the Constitution established. It allowed the restriction upon the president's power because it found that the Federal Trade Commission did not exercise purely executive
0: power and then the unitary executive pops up a lot later as this conservative theory of apportionment of power among the branches are you familiar with the theory of the unitary executive no tell me about it uh it is an interpretation that few like myself happen to believe in article 2 of the constitution that vests the president with absolute executive authority and i mean absolute Certainly it's something that's kind of conveniently deployed, maybe when there's a Republican administration. But did the Hughes Court really care about FDR in particular having lots of power to conduct foreign affairs?
1: The concern was was not the president's overreach in foreign affairs as the federal government role in the national economy. There's a sort of unitary executive theory that's within the area of separation of powers that uh, sets its face against the correctness of the Humphreys executor case. And Humphreys executor, Congress is- limited the president's power to remove a federal trade commissioner. According to the unitary executive theory, uh, the president must have the power to remove any and every executive official at his or her pleasure. So oddly, you have what is thought of as a sort of conservative or right-leaning theory that empowers or tends to empower a single official, the president, and of course, one might scratch one's head and say, "Wait a second! If you're if you're worried about encroachments on liberty, shouldn't you be interested in weakening the chief executive? I mean, isn't the chief executive already invested with enormous powers? Um, so there's there's that head scratcher that comes into it. The non-delegation doctrine limits Congress's ability to delegate what." the court prefers to call decision-making authority to the executive and the agencies and the so-called independent agencies. If Congress can't write broadly empowering the executive, then of course, the executive can't get that power. The agencies under the direction of of the executive can't get that power. So the non-delegation doctrine effectively restricts two branches. And how that, that manages, of course, the might as well mention that it also radically increases the power of the federal judiciary. So you sort of have this imaginary tuggle at the federal level, which essentially is, is submerging the three contestants in a sea of, if you like, unregulated private economic activity and freakishly inconsistent uh, state level lawmaking. It's complicated.
2: Right, I'm curious about the full extent of the non-delegation doctrine. If that were to so it would be re-implemented that you couldn't delegate the authority to those agencies.
1: what would society even look like? I can't even really imagine it's so unfathomable. Well, I mean the the doctrine uh, is short that Congress can convey, decision-making authority that, for all purposes, is lawmaking power, but only uh, uh, in terms that state an intelligible principle. And intelligible principles can be quite broad and, if you like, also uh, vague. Public interest, convenience, and necessity The FCC is in power to, to make rules uh, governing the broadcasters. Uh, and so far as that serves the public interest, convenience and necessity. Now those rules, if the, if the FCC made no rules, there would be no law to fill that out. But if it makes rules, Congress could have made those rules. It would be legislation if Congress had done it. Uh, but those rules uh, are do impose legal duties and endow persons uh, in and out of government with, with legal rights essentially. that's so lawmaking power within this restricted range. We just don't call it that, or the court is, is not comfortable with calling that. So ever since Schechter Poultry, I mean, from, from time to time, the court has, has tried to, or members of the court have tried to uh, resuscitate a vital, non-deleg- a robust non-delegation doctrine. But they always kind of back away at the last moment. I think the significance of it is now a sort of a, a, a gravitational power that it has over the scope of a related doctrine called the Chevron doctrine, which you may have may have heard of. Alex, you've you've had admin law Um, with me, right? Apparently, a
0: lot of the uh, deference canons are covered in legreg as well. So we are all up to speed on Chevron Mm -hmm. and the resulting dramas. So if I may interject, I do have a question, not necessarily about Chevron deference, but you mentioned that there have been interested parties in in the court that have wanted to reinstate a stronger non-delegation doctrine. I'm curious what pressures caused these interested parties to back away over the years.
1: Well I think Tate kind of expressed it as well as anyone could, which is if you if you really take it seriously, then it's 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 like a nuclear holocaust in a sense that very little of our federal government governmental apparatus would remain would remain standing i mean the the uh, it would mean that congress would have to write write laws with such specificity over such a huge range of minute topics that well as a as a as a practical matter congress would be well what do i do i need to explain this i mean it's it's so abundantly clear that Congress can barely function as it is, and if it were unable to uh, empower agencies to carry forward the statutory purposes that of course must be uh, made in the constitutionally prescribed way bicameral passage presentment to the to the president then then the federal sovereign would essentially seize up. There was a Whitman trucking case a couple of decades back in which it looked as though the Supreme Court of the United States, and there were a couple of members of the court that were interested in bringing back the non-delegation doctrine. Justice Rehnquist, Justice Berger, they had expressed interest. But in Whitman trucking, have personnel changes. But in Whitman trucking, only... Justice Thomas expressed a strong interest in reviving the non-delegation doctrine by way of uh, discarding the intelligible uh, principle uh, interpretation of it that goes back to Justice Chief Justice Taft's opinion and J.W. Hampton in the 1920s. So, as as um, according to uh, Professor Larry Tribe of 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 Harvard. Our current court is not properly thought of as the Roberts Court. It should be thought of as the Thomas Court. The court has come around to Justice Thomas's views, most notably in the the area of the the Second Amendment. There was nothing happening. It was just a long line of precedents that held that the Second Amendment did not contain an individual right to bear arms that was good against the state. As the several states, well, the the well-regulated militia clause limited limited the scope of, of the right. Well, Justice Thomas turned that on its head, and in uh, Whitman Trucking, he, he said There's nothing in the Constitution about intelligible principles. What it says is the le- all legislative powers vested in Congress. So. More lightly, Justice Gorsuch, before he was, and after, I suppose, after he was elevated to the Supreme Court, regards Shakti Poultry as, as never overruled. It, yeah, he cited never it. Overruled. He cites it. And he, um, in fact, turns it against the Chevron Doctrine, which I let me say something about that, at the risk of boring you, ragged leg students. Chevron is sort of understood as a, a sort of refined canon of construction, where you have congressional statute uh, that's been interpreted a certain way by an administrative agency. If that ambiguity can't be resolved by other techniques of statutory construction, even if alternative reasonable interpretations remain, then reviewing court is to defer to the agency construction so long as it's reasonable. Now this means that agencies have more power than they otherwise would. without this, uh, if you like, deferential attitude by courts toward their interpretations of their mission statements given by Congress, their governing statutes, they would uh, essentially have to wait and see, look to the courts for direction, because in the alternative, going back to Congress to get more precise direction, well, that's, uh, you might get the opinions of various Congress people, but to, for Congress to speak authoritatively, that is to make law a more precise law essentially has to pass an amendment to the statute under which you've been operating. The courts would coordinately have greater power were they to disavow this deferential attitude toward agency interpretations.
2: We'll hear argument this morning in case 1815,
1: Kaiser versus Wilkie, the Secretary of Veterans Affairs. If you don't defer the agency's choice among reasonable interpretations, and you're to decide a case, then you, the court, will be the decider.
2: But uh, what you're doing is saying instead of paying attention to people who know about that, the judges should decide. I mean, I want to parody it, but I mean, this sounds like the greatest judicial power grab since Marbury versus Madison, which I would say was correctly decided.
1: (laughs) Well, so Chevron doctrine, together with the intelligible principle interpretation of the non-delegation doctrine, gives agencies of the federal government significant power. Of course, that's what Congress wants. Uh, when it creates an agency and directs it to uh, 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 to remove uh, restraints of trade and unfair and deceptive practices, it doesn't want to have to say what all those are. And, in precise detail, it wants the agency though to take to do the job, to take to take its mission and and to pursue it without having to get further minute uh, direction. And 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 Tate, I, I take your point that you know it's it's hard to see how it could be any other way. So it's not at all a surprise or an oddness that the intelligible principle doctrine and the Chevron doctrine have emerged in the course of our modern history and have proved to be pretty durable. I mean, it's not like, for example, this is one of Professor Siegel's examples is the interpretation of the 11th amendment. You're, you're familiar. With it. I don't need to go over that with you. I mean, that that could have gone the other way and who would have known the difference? <laughs> Whereas with the intelligible principle reading of Reading well, it's nothing to read. It's already uh, something you've read in the non-delegation doctrine is something you've read in to the Constitution, which doesn't contain it. And the intelligible principle interpretation of your own interpretation, of course, is a double reading in. It, how could it be any other way, really? And so also with Chevron and, and Justice Scalia, the late Justice Scalia. I guess it's not so late anymore. It's been a few years. So, you know where we can't figure out what precisely Congress meant as to a particular issue, we should take that as an indication that Congress wanted us to listen to the agency. If the agency has a reasonable reading, I mean, they were empowered to address what often very technical, complicated problems requiring great expertise to address. We are judges. We don't, we We're not an expert in biochemistry or pharmaceuticals or climate science and so forth. Let's let's let the agency do its job. That's what Congress wanted. This has just been turned on its head.
0: Go ahead. In some states, especially Kentucky, I remember from my state and local government class, Kentucky and Florida, state, uh, state agencies will be overruled, like the agency action will be set aside by courts, or the agency will be dissolved entirely all the time, especially when there's something that the Supreme Court in a state has just really opposed, like rent control. In Florida, the state has tried to create rent control agencies and tried to empower existing agencies to do rent control all the time. And the result of Florida's construction of the non-delegation doctrine has just been that you can't control rent in the state of Florida. So I feel like on the federal (laughs) level, it could really be a crisis where there maybe we just can't, it could be that the government cannot regulate emissions under the constitution or something like that. So it could be really bad. I I don't think that they would be as bold as some of the states have, but- yeah, I mean, if they really decide to be as muscular as some of the states have been, there could just be things that the whole federal government can't realistically.
1: Yeah, that's 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 your your intuition as well. I mean, that that if you try to put teeth into a non-delegation doctrine, the tendency is to is to leave whole whole areas of life unregulated. Now. Lovers of liberty, infatuated lovers of liberty might rejoice and say, "Oh, this is great. this is great. you know uh, you you'll you'll will uh, control the rents I charge uh, over my over my dead body, but I, I don't have to go that far because you don't have the power to do it. or if you if you want to do it, you have to do it in a in a minute fashion involving whatever legislative process exists. I mean, abstractly, you can say, well, you know, the Florida legislature could do rent control just by decree. I mean, just say, well, here's here are our rents, the rents that may be charged for the coming We want some flexibility over the oh, year, and we want to make some distinctions among, and we want to, you know, allow for certain kinds of costs to be passed through, and we want others to be split additional costs and we want to be able to respond to we'll do this every year we'll do this every year we'll be back next year so we will pass a statewide rent control measure that for the coming year and we'll be back next year and <laughs> take your smiling, <laughs> you too Allie. i mean you know what's going to happen next year <laughs> you're, not gonna, you're not gonna you need some some, uh, some distance here. And that's precisely what the certain members of the court return to in, in, in objecting to Humphrey's executor and objecting to the intelligible principle idea and objecting to Chevron is that we want accountability. We want uh, decisions made by the person or body closest to the people. It's anti-democratic undemocratic to uh, better the president and his or her power to remove inefficient officials because the president is elected and these officials aren't. Uh, it's undemocratic for agencies to uh, to exercise lawmaking power. I mean, the people empowered Congress by delegating their the people's power to make law. And that, that legislative power was not to be delegated. You're, you're to make laws, not lawyers, lawmakers. And Chevron, Congress is closer to the people than the agencies. And therefore, it's Congress's voice we want to hear, unmediated the say so of unelected bureaucrats. So there's a, there's a kind of crude populism <laughs> lurking underneath all this all this rhetoric. And I do you- I do
0: have a question about West Virginia v. EPA because as okay. your uh, rent control example kind of points out, it's already sort of difficult to imagine a legislature, especially the U.S. Congress, as it behaves right now going into a lot of minutiae and saying here's what the minimum wage is going to be and all of these zip codes here's what the rents are going to be over here all the, all this stuff so let's say that they don't delegate any legislative power because they're just telling all the agencies exactly what all the rules are going to be but if the rules are really significant let's say they tell all the agencies we're, we're gonna have a all of these penalties for pollution, and we're going to have all of these environmental rules, we're going to have the lakes be this pure and no air pollution. It seems like then there's going to be a major questions issue based on this West Virginia VEPA decision. So is there any tension between non-delegation and major questions? Because it seems like the Supreme Court's message is don't delegate the legislative power, because you're supposed to be the one making the laws. But it's also, when you make the laws, if it results in agencies doing really big things, that's not allowed either.
1: You're, you're, you're right. Let me, let me just quickly just make sure we're on the same page here. And once Virginia versus EPA decided just this summer, the Supreme Court, for the first time, Enunciated what it called a major questions doctrine, which does two things. The first is to limit the scope of the Chevron doctrine. In other words, where the court perceives that a major question of statutory interpretation is involved, that goes to the agency's power to do something, you don't you don't do the Chevron analysis. That's the the first part of it. And, and that's not altogether novel because the court had previously in a series of cases held that the Chevron analysis didn't apply to decisions that you might say are are, are so unmajor that it's unlikely that Congress intended the particular agency to speak authoritatively uh, as to a certain matter. In other words, uh, certain kinds of fairly routine and trivial kinds of agency actions like letter rulings, rulings on tariff classifications, they weren't entitled to chevron deference, essentially because it's unlikely that, that Congress meant that each of these things should have the authority of law. So a little bite was taken out of Chevron already kind of on the lower end. Major questions takes a a bite out of it at the top end. It's a major question. Sort of leaving Chevron for the for the in-between kinds of of the things, the the big rules that affect the entire national economy.
0: The Goldilocks.
1: Um, Yeah, the, the Goldilocks approach. But but then and then, and this is this is what is really head spinning for me. Anyway, they went and said uh, where there is a major question. Not only is Chevron not applicable, but the agency must show where in the statute, there's a clear statement empowering the agency, which is effectively to cut back on the intelligible principle doctrine. Yes, you may delegate decision-making authority so long as it's an intelligible principle, but unless there's a clear statement empowering you to do what you did, you don't have the power to do it, even if it's reasonable to think that you did. Even if a Chevron analysis would tell us, yeah, sure, uh, it's reasonable to think that a system of pollution reduction would include a cap-and-trade regime for power generation. That sounds reasonable, doesn't it? The court's not going to say, no, that's not reasonable. No, they're going to say it's reasonable by implication. That's how you can't do it anyway because the statute doesn't contain a clear statement, a clear enough statement. And it's a major question. So a huge wrecking ball has just landed against the, the federal establishment, because what's a major question? <laughs> to, to hear Justice Gorsuch tell us, it, it's anything that's controversial. <laughs> and, and Alex, as you point out, I mean, he doesn't think, oh, we have no idea what 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 was decided back 50 years ago. Who knows? As a matter of fact, contemporary controversy is enough to elevate a question to major status. So uh, we know it when we see it. Test. Yeah, well, it's a, well, we know it when somebody says it's so, Test.
0: Yeah, I know it when I see it. It's from the Burger court's difficulty getting a test for obscenity, and it, it is sort of worse than that and lazier than that, where they have this, Roberts says in these new admin law cases, what matters is whether it raises an eyebrow. Does, it, does a judge cock <laughs> a skeptical brow? And these major questions, elements about, you know, is it of major political importance, major economic importance? It reminds me of, it's kind of a reverse political question doctrine analysis, because the court's have come up with a really similar justiciability test, starting mostly with Baker v. Carr, where if there are special circumstances that kind of counsel in favor of uh, fealty to a pre-existing settlement, then the courts are supposed to just stay away from it entirely. There, it's not—it's not even really that passive. They're supposed to. Instru- the Supreme Court is supposed to instruct all the lower courts not to hear any cases on a particular issue and now with this major questions doctrine it's a lot of really similar elements where they're saying in these types of cases where we might find the issue really f- interesting we're gonna say any, you know any agency could potentially be taken to court and I think you know the hes- when we were talking about intelligible principle I had this feeling like I think that the concern in terms of doing away with it entirely could be if someone's going to sue the military, where they're worried that, you know, there's going to be all these challenges to military action, but they know that that'll be, that's going to be safe under, um, I don't know, there's plenty of other, the the courts have already created a different standard for there being executive discretion over the military. So they're going to have their utopian system where there is the pentagon is kind of a vatican city basically there's just this fifth column of military that that's autonomous but then the rest the government that is you know regulating the environment regulating the workplace anything that working people in the united states would rely on that is going to be nitpicked to death from all these pedantic challenges to oh well is this a workplace issue or an occupational issue is this a health issue or a medical issue it's never going to end
1: it's a new world. I mean, of course, uh, Congress uh, could, um, could jump in and say, well, here's your clear statement. The EPA has authority to impose a cap-and-trade regime on power-generating facilities. Now, the chances of such language getting through Congress, uh, well, of course, are variable. I mean, it's possible. All right. Joining
2: us this evening, great pleasure, Senator Ted Cruz from the great state of Texas. Senator Cruz, always, sir, it's great to see you.
1: There was an item in the New York, I think it was the New York Times, just last last week, in which the reporter claimed that the Inflation Reduction Act contains language that overrules I think it, what was meant was overrules West Virginia versus EPA on the matter of whether a system of pollution control would encompass a cap and trade regime. I think that was meant, but it was one of the more sloppily written of the, um, of the New York Times uh, articles. And it, 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 what was missing those little hyperlinks you wanna see well where does it say that exactly
2: and i'll tell you something else there's an element of this bill that is particularly noxious it's buried in there which is the democrats are trying to overturn the supreme court's west virginia versus epa victory came just a month ago where the court concluded the epa didn't have the ability to rewrite our environmental laws to regulate carbon Apparently, Joe Manchin has cut a deal with Chuck Schumer to slip into this bill, language overturning that, that, that decision which empowers the EPA to destroy your job. And I'll tell you, there's no group that is getting hammered more by this terrible bill than coal miners in West Virginia. Mm. It is insane that when we're facing a recession and skyrocketing inflation, the Democrats are saying, let's hit working men and women even harder so we can pay off our lobbyist billionaire buddies.
1: And I would be grateful to to, 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 the, to the three of you if you'd. If you hear any more about this, I'd like to know. if, they, if they, I mean, they did sneak something in there that in any way uh, corrects West Virginia versus EPA on whatever point. Uh, I'd like to know about it, because I, I haven't seen any other reference to this anywhere. Of course, it's a, a rather large, hastily put together statute, but uh, there could be a difference of opinion about what a statute accomplishes we got a clear statement in there. (laughs) West Virginia versus EPA overruled. And they knew it was in there because they were bellyaching about it. (laughs) I just, I got to see it. If you find that language in the statute, in the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, I would be most grateful if you would share that with me because uh, I haven't haven't yet, I've yet to teach West Virginia versus EPA. And uh, I want to be I'm going to be braced and prepared when a student raises her hand and says, uh, "Professor Edmondson, uh, the Inflation Reduction Act actually overruled the case you're so worried about." <laughs> I want to be ready for that. I mean, I'd be absolutely overjoyed if it were true.
2: Senator, can you expand? I don't. I, I'm not aware of this to overturn uh, West Virginia University PA. I don't know what the language is. Um, You are a legal scholar. How does this, what are they saying? What's in here? Because I think you're breaking some news here. Uh,
0: Apparently, Ted Cruz is... It says um, it's buried in there. Senator Ted Cruz, Republican of Texas, told Fox (laughs) Business Network the Democrats are trying to overturn the Supreme Court's West Virginia v. EPA victory.
2: Radical environmentalists hate it. So what this bill does is it writes in place several times carbon, carbon, carbon. It writes it into the EPA law so that they can go back and say, well, now Congress has done this. So there's some bipartisan um, consensus on this, and it's a power grab by the radical left so
1: it, uh, but it, interestingly the uh, the uh, the court and West Virginia, Justice Robert's opinion says oh well if it's buried in there it's not a clear statement which <laughs> is <It just, laughs> yeah so um, degree of buriedness has to do with clarity I mean I don't know if a diamond is buried you know under a pile of why you know and i'd say it's maybe it's real clear when you get it
0: up close but
1: no 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 it's got to be clear from up here i guess up here on the surface i don't
0: see it as buried and the next term i think we'll have a lot to talk about with um admin law cases well thank you for speaking with us
1: yeah thank you professor i've had a, I've had
0: a yeah, thank it's you so much a ton of fun for me thanks hallie yeah. until next time
2: everyone have a good saturday i don't know why joe got snookered on this but, but I hope he comes to his senses and, and, and remembers that bankrupting a bunch of coal miners in West Virginia is a really bad idea.
1: Yeah, I know uh, for a lot of reasons, including political reasons, but I'm going to have to look into this. They're writing in Cartman emissions to overturn that EPA. That is very yeah. bad, sir. So thank you yes. for alerting us. We're going to take uh, take a
2: closer look at that. Made the end. They had nothing left to lose. Union, guiding country was all they ever knew. And the Union, guiding country, West Virginia, gold and blue. Union, guiding country was all we ever. West Virginia, Golden Blue, Union-guided country, was all we ever knew, it was Union-guided country, West Virginia, Golden Blue, Union-guided country, was all we ever knew.